Our scripture passage today comes from the book of Malachi, chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to God's word, we need his help. So let us begin with a moment of prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises you make to your people through your prophets and the apostles and that they've been recorded for us so that we can, too, partake in them, listen to them, respond to them. Lord, we need your spirits to give us ears to hear. Would you give us your spirit now as we look to your word? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we've been looking at the book of Malachi seems everything has been going badly. Remember, the first complaint was that the Lord loved his people, but they said, how have you loved us? And then the Lord went on to rebuke the priests for not only allowing the people to bring in lame sacrifices, but for being complicit in this false worship, and also for going on to being false teachers and for failing to teach the people well. Everything was wrong in this day. Remember, it was just a generation ago that the temple had been rebuilt after they had come back from exile. And so quickly, the people of God have become cynical, skeptic about what God would require of his people, about the promises he had made. They had become cold-hearted. We see now this actually looking back to one of the complaints that they had against the Lord. In verse 17 here, we have the opening that says, You have wearied the Lord. And if you remember back in chapter 1, verse 13, when the Lord had rebuked the people about bringing in the blind offering and the lame offering and giving their poorest things to the Lord and how an abomination that was, they said, oh, this is so wearisome. It's so wearisome that we ought to worship the Lord rightly. 
And so the Lord turns that towards uh, a rebuke then of how they have indeed wearied him. You have wearied the Lord with your words. That they say, how have we wearied him? And here we see these two real clear delineations about the, the attitude of the heart of the people that Malachi is speaking to. First is one of cynicism. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Now, what they aren't saying here is that the Lord has written that down anywhere, but that what they see is that evil people, the people who seem to disregard what the Lord has said, the people who are likely doing these things at the end of our passage today, who are oppressing the workers, who are disregarding the sojourners, who are practicing sorcery, who are adulterers, they seem to be prospering. And so they say, look, these wicked men, They have found favor in the sight of the Lord. He delights in their wickedness. You can hear the cynicism in their voice. And then they move on to a similar mindset of skepticism. A jeering of the Lord. Where is the God of justice? Indeed, these might be people who have been on the brunt end of these atrocities. They may have been the sojourner or the one who is being underpaid for his work. Maybe the one who's being exploited in the society where righteousness is supposed to be upheld. And so they have become cynical. They have become skeptical of God's promises to be a God of justice. Why hasn't he shown up? Why are these people having so much success while we languish? The thing that we need to do when we come to a passage like this is really to begin to see ourselves and the way in which perhaps we also carry in our lips cynicism and skepticism. Perhaps we don't necessarily have these exact words, but it is not uncommon for us to say cynical things, to be skeptical about the promises God has made to us. And so when we come to God's word, we ought not to think about just purely these are people at the time when Malachi lived, and this was their problem, and this was their heart attitude, but to take some time to consider the ways in which we are also cynics and skeptics. When we look at our lives and perhaps the plight we are going through today or this week or this year or since such and such happened to me, when we view ourselves as being on the receiving end of this victimization in whatever circumstance we view ourselves, we will be tempted in our sinful hearts to, at least on some level, blame God. Because we see other people who are not trying to live righteously, who seem to flourish, who seem to have no consequences for their action. In fact, maybe even the people who have wronged us seem to be thriving. And it can cause us to, like these people, have hardened hearts. 
We can read about the glorious riches from Ephesians chapter 1 of all the things that the Lord has blessed us with, but we might read that and be skeptical. It doesn't feel like our lived body experience. It doesn't feel like we've received these blessings. Yes, the Father loves us, but I don't feel loved. I feel abandoned. Indeed, that is the heart of that criticism. Where is the God of justice? He seems nowhere to be found. Now, there might be some justification for their complaints. It's not that they are 100% incorrect. And indeed, as we wrestle with God's providence over our lives, whether good or bad, in terms of our lived experience and the pain that often comes with it, there's some justification in having these types of complaints. And what we can find here of great encouragement, right? This book seems really negative so far. They complain, the Lord rebukes them. They complain, the Lord rebukes them. But there's this great message that we don't want to lose along the way, and that is that the Lord has responded, that he has heard their complaints, right? The Lord doesn't need to respond. He is fully justified to ignore their complaints. There is no need for him to defend himself. He would be fully righteous and just to judge them how he sees fit. But that is not what he has decided to do. Instead, he has sent his messenger, Malachi, that's what his name means, to respond, to respond to their hard-heartedness, to call them back to himself, to show his love through his messenger, to respond to their complaints, even if it is harsh, even if it has to be a rebuke, a slap upside the head that you just don't understand. The Lord hears them, and he responds. There's a great grace in that. It's one that we can take to heart as we perhaps have these thoughts. As you perhaps go through difficult times in your life, you might be tempted to blame God. And indeed, he is not offended by your words in a way that causes him to dismiss your pain. Indeed, when we cry out, he hears us, and he is gracious enough to respond, and not to merely respond in some sort of self-defense or anger, but to respond in a way to call us back to himself. And that's what we see now as we move into chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord's response. The Lord's response to this Weariness of their complaints against him. Where is the God of justice? Well, here is what he says. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Pause there for a moment. Might be a passage you're familiar with. 
Indeed, it's quoted several times in the New Testament, referring specifically to John the Baptist, who is coming to prepare the way for our Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed, that is ultimately what's in view here. But even this simple language, behold, I send my messenger. Remember our first message, Malachi? We don't really know if that's even his name. It just means my messenger. Behold, I send Malachi. And so there might even be a sense in which Malachi is telling them here in this message, the Lord has sent me. In this immediate sense, as we look to prophetic books like Malachi and Isaiah and Ezekiel and right, all of the prophets of the Old Testament, there is often a multi-layered fulfillment of the words that are spoken to God's people. There's, there must be a relevance to the people in that day. Why would it matter for them to hear this? Would it really be that helpful for people to hear Well, in 400 years, I'm going to send a messenger. No, but even in this moment, Malachi is there. And he is preparing the hearts of the the people to receive the Lord as he comes. But ultimately, it is fulfilled in the fuller sense as John the Baptist comes and is the messenger to prepare the way for Christ. But this response, it points not merely to just God responding in word or by sending a prophet. Because as we hear these words, they aren't merely him sending another like Malachi. See, a king would send a messenger to prepare the way before his entrance into a city. If the king was going to come to your town, he would send a whole bunch of people before him to clear the way, to declare, to blow the trumpets, to make sure people were ready for the king to come in so he wouldn't be held up on his way. And that is indeed what is happening with John the Baptist. He has come to proclaim that the king is coming. And it's not just another messenger to come on behalf of the king. Indeed, that is this first one to come. But it will be the Lord himself. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. It will no longer just be the priests and the prophets and those proclaiming God's word, but the Lord, the owner of the temple himself, will suddenly appear. He is the messenger of the covenant. So God's response to their complaints, where is the God of justice, is that he will show up in this sudden and unprecedented way that he, God himself, will be with his people. So God's response is that he is coming. He will dwell with his people. He will show up on the scene. And we're told then in verse 2 a bit more about what this will be like. And we can read these next few words, the rest of our passage today, really from two different perspectives. One in great fear and one of great comfort. Indeed, I think there are some of both that we ought to have in mind, starting in verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? What's it going to be like when this Lord shows up into the temple? Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. 
their complaint that the Lord seemed distant, that he was nowhere to be found, and the promise that he would come would elicit a certain amount of sobriety. Do you want the king to show up? Do you want the day of reckoning? Do you want that to happen? Is that truly what they have in mind? Do they understand all of the implications of what it would mean for the Lord himself to show up in the temple? Remember all of the times in which the Lord's presence showed up before the people of God. They often hid themselves. Moses hiding, having to be shoved into the crevice of a rock so that he wasn't destroyed by God's glory. The people hearing the word of the Lord from the mountain and saying, Moses, you go, we're too afraid. And indeed, that same reverence and awe is here in these words, who can endure the day of his coming? Because when a holy, righteous, perfect judge king comes in judgment, right? We're told in verse 5, he's coming to be the God of justice. It will have great terror. The books will be opened. The judge will be seated. We often don't fear much of anything in our days. In fact, look on the news. Any current event, we will go at any place at any time, no matter what anybody tells us, because, well, we have the freedom to do so. But it would not have been so at the time really in any other place or time in history, where if you were to walk into the king's chambers or the king were to walk by you and you were to act improperly, you would have been struck down. And so the king coming to his temple would have been a terrifying sight. And we're told what it will be like. Now, interesting, this imagery of fire. Uh, One commentator talked about there's different types of fire, right? He said, the Lord isn't a forest fire. That is going to burn everything up indiscriminately. You can just burn down everything in its path, like you see out west, right? Every house, every business, anything that's in its way will get burned up. And it also doesn't tell us that the Lord is an incinerator, which destroys everything completely. But that the Lord is a refining fire. That there's a purpose through which the flame will come. And that's not to say that a refiner's fire is any less hot than a forest fire or an incinerator. But that it is being done with a purpose. That when the Lord is going to show up, he is going to do something to his people. Now this is a painful process, right? To, to have a you know, mixed metal put into a refining fire to get the dross out of it. Indeed, there's lots of heat needed. And now, just in case we're worried here about this soap being some sort of lighter task, well, they didn't have free and clear tide back in the first century. Or, you know, aloe vera hand soap. What we're talking about here is this very abrupt lie, bleach, getting into the pores, scrubbing those claws against, right, you know, the old boards they used to use even, you know, 100 years ago. Getting in to get all of the dirt, all of the impurities out, to see the stains. The only way you could get those out was with the harshest chemicals that they had available.
And so, the refinement of the Lord, the cleansing of the dirt, the removal of the dross is what it's going to be like when the Lord shows up in his temple. And we're told why he is going to do this. He's going to do this in verse 4. So that the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Really what we have in mind here, of course, can point to the specific time when Jesus shows up into the temple. Maybe even that scene where he purges it from those who have perverted the sacrifice. He turns over the tables of the money changers. But ultimately, what we're really looking at here is the Lord's work in his people. That, right, these people are complaining that they have had not a great lot in life, and that the wicked people have had better lives, and that it doesn't seem that God is really at work. And I think what the Lord is revealing to them, what he is telling us through his words today, That he is at work and some of that hardship we might feel is indeed this purification that he is working in and through his people. C.S. Lewis uh, is known for this illustration. Uh, As people come to faith in Christ, oftentimes they like to think that he is going to go in to their house and decorate some of the rooms. But God is at Not quite that type of transformation that is going to happen. He's not merely going to go in and give a new coat of paint in your bedroom. Instead, when somebody comes to faith in Christ, the work of the Lord is more like a full-blown renovation. They are going to demolish the old sides. They're going to change the roof line. They're going to tear down the old walls and put up new ones. Now, of course, if you've ever just painted your room versus doing a remodel... One is much easier than the other. One is much less work. One is much less painful than the other. But the overall result is far greater for the one that took more work, had more pain, caused more destruction, it seemed, on the front end. And indeed, that imagery is the same imagery we have here. That the Lord, as he is at work in his people, it might be painful. It might seem for a moment he has even abandoned us. But it is through those difficult providences, through that demolition of our old lives and our sin and dirty dross, that he is working in us. His purposes. Indeed, it might cause us great fear if there was nothing wrong in our lives at all. If God had left us to our devices. Dude, that's probably one of the most strongest curses we see in all of Scripture that the Lord handed them over to their sin. Instead of correcting them. Instead of responding to them, instead of stopping them, instead of putting them through the refiner's fire. This is what the Christian life will be like for those whom God's spirit is at work. Oftentimes for our confession, uh, assurance of pardon, we have the uh, promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36. So he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This work of God in our hearts. Now, oftentimes we read that and we have a very spiritualized understanding, right? 
We're talking about open heart surgery. Ripping out your heart. Indeed, replacing it with one far greater. Removing your wicked spirit and giving you his Holy Spirit, causing you to walk in his ways. The sanctifying work of God's Spirit in our lives may be painful. It may look unfair in the moment. And what God is telling his people here is that they ought not to fear. Our last verse, verse 6, the reason why, if you looked in your Bible, it seems offset. And why I think it ought to be included is it's a further affirmation of this refiner's fire. Verse 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Remember, he loved Jacob. O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. You may feel destroyed. You may feel judged. You may feel beat up. You may feel discouraged. But if you are in Christ, you will not be consumed. He will work together all of the pain and hardship in our lives for his glory and for our good that the offering we might bring would be even more holy that we would become more and more like him and our section here in verse 5 i believe is one of great fear one that's not particularly pointed to the people of god but to those who indeed have been given over to their sin because he will come in judgment And all of those things you thought he wasn't dealing with will be dealt with. The sorcerers and the adulterers and those who swear falsely. All of those people who have been doing those wicked things that seem to be prospering. You better believe there will be a day of reckoning before God's throne. Now, we might look at this list and perhaps we can get ourselves out of most of them, if not some of them. Indeed. Hopefully some of the hearers heard this proclamation and repented so that they too might pass through the refining fire instead of God's all-consuming judgment. But the great hope, this is a passage of great hope. Though you have complained, though you have wearied the Lord, he has not given up on you. He has heard your complaint. And he has promised that he himself will come. He himself will prepare the way. He himself will dwell in your midst. He himself will judge rightly. And he himself will make you into the person he wants you to be. He will refine you. He will remove the sin from your lives slowly, painfully, but ultimately for our good and for his glory that we could be in the presence of this holy perfect righteous king may god give us the eyes to see his work in our lives as we are prone to cynicism and skepticism about his work may we be reminded that he is working all those things together for his purposes may we cry out to him knowing that he hears us not rejecting his people, not being far removed, but instead is at work in and through all of the providence he has brought into our lives. May we know that we will not be consumed. And may we look ahead to this day when the king comes. Not only did Jesus show up in this fulfillment of this promise, but ultimately 
there is a final time, the final judgment, and we don't have to be in fear because we know that Christ has taken upon himself this judgment that we deserve and instead has given us his spirit, his righteousness, his salvation. Let us trust in that today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you hear the cries of your people, even as we are cynical, skeptical people, that you hear us and you respond to us and you assure us of your love. Help us to respond. Help us to repent of our sins and to trust in you, to see the pain in our lives as your work. Lord, help us to turn each day from our sin to trusting more in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.